you've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. How are you doing, folks? You're listening to Chat with Traders. I am your host, Aaron Firefield. What you're going to hear very shortly is my interview with John Netto. John, a former US Marine, describes himself as a high-velocity cross-asset class trader. He connects the ability to be versatile, adaptable, and interpret large amounts of information to be his greatest edge for making lucrative returns. These are all things we cover during the interview, which includes discussion about process, research, strategy, macro, and market regimes. We also talk about the benefits of stepping outside of your comfort zone, why there's a need to embrace growing pains, and when emotion can be an ally. And just a quick heads up to let you know on the next episode being 109, I have Edward Thorpe on the podcast. So look forward to that. But right now, here is John Netto for episode 108. Thank you so much for listening. Fair enough. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, let's uh, let's just get into it. So John, I understand that... Um, your interest in speculating began at a pretty young age. Do you want to share with us where this all began for you? Sure. I would say that um, I, I placed my first sports bet when I was eight years old. And uh, it was a, you know NFL game here in the United States, American football. And, uh, and it was just something that, you know, the idea of, of, of having something at stake based on a yet-to-be-determined outcome was very intriguing and very um, alluring. And uh, as a result of that, I ended up, you know, developing quite a quite an interest in in how to predict more accurately. Because at first, uh, you know, they normally say like the worst thing that can happen is the first bet you place is a winner. Because it kind of hooks you and it gives you this adrenaline and you think that this is beatable. Well, actually, I lost like the first couple of bets that I placed. So in that regard, it's it's interesting just to see, you know, how that how that whole thing evolved. But I didn't take no for an answer, so <laughs> I kept on kept on sports betting and i would say that um while i don't do that anymore it's something that uh it's something that 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 sort of was in my blood and it's inherent desire to take on risk and then ultimately you know with a process and a discipline um began at a very young age 
So, I mean, that's that's not normal for an eight-year-old to take a sports bet. How did that sort of come about? Was that something you picked up from your father or, or where did that come from? Now, ironically, my father's very conservative. However, he did um, he did really impress upon us like the importance of investing and saving and, and really putting money away. He always followed the stock market. I, I remember very distinctly in junior high, in seventh grade, it was October 19th, 1987, the day of the big crash, and the Dow fell whatever 500 points. And I live on the West Coast, so I'm three hours behind New York City. So we were driving in at 7:45 a.m., which is about 10:45 a.m. in New York. And like the radio was going on, talking about the Dow was down 250 points now. The Dow's down 350 points now. And my dad talking about how much money he was losing on the market. And I just thought it was absolutely fascinating watching this market sell off, which probably loves explains why I just I, I think why a lot of traders you know love make money being short the market. Um, and, and there was just something fascinating about a big market crash. And that was, I was 13 years old when that happened. Also, this is around the time, of course, I mean, the Oliver Stone movie, Wall Street. And, and, and when I saw that movie, I was gosh, 12 or 13 as well. Um, and just knew right away that, that when I, when I saw all the, the scenes and most traders out there who are in their forties, I'm 42 are very familiar with the, with the final scene of the movie when he's down on the floor and he's, he's trying to save his father's company by bringing in another corporate raider to do, to outbid Gordon Gecko, then ultimately dump the shares and then, and then really, you know, have Gecko lose a lot of money. Just the intrigue, the, the, the Machiavellian style with which that movie was constructed, you know, Oliver Stone intended, he's, he's, he has said many times to really depict corporate greed at its, at its worst and then to show just, you know, how, how, uh, how nefarious, you know, finance, the financial industry can be. And instead, you know, paradoxically, he actually turned on a number of people to the financial industry and, and a young John Netto being one of them. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. That's uh, it's such a classic movie, that one. In high school, I presume this was probably just a few years after you were a bookie. Now I can't remember where I read this, but no, well, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I provided liquidity for those wishing to prognosticate on the outcome of sporting events. Let's make sure we have our, our semantics correct here, Aaron. All right. <laughs> now, some people might call that a bookie. I was a liquidity provider, though, and provided lots of exotic derivatives bets to make that to make that possible. And so my high school career taught me a lot of things. Actually, that was in my that, that I talk about that a lot. Um, um, that experience, sort of how I created the netto number. And the first sort of version of the netto number was, was when I was a bookie in high school, to use your terminology, when I was providing liquidity in high school, um, to those, you know, who wanted, who wanted some action on, on, on American football games, which is the most popular sport to bet on here in the U S. And I came up with what was called a progressive point spread, um, at the age of 16, where most American style betting is, is a binary outcome, meaning you either win or you lose the entire amount. And the progressive point spread provided context, albeit a cap on that context, which seemed to make more sense. So the team, you know, is a seven point favorite and they win by 15 or they win by eight. The way American, you know, the most American bets work now, which is still to this day the case, you're going to win the same amount of money. However, with the progressive point spread, um, I had to model it around NFL games because NFL points, um, like three and seven is a very powerful point. They occur more frequently. So I had to model out how I work those payouts. Um, if a, you know, a team won by seven and laying a dollar 10 to win a dollar, meaning you bet a dollar 10, you get back two ten, then they win by eight. Okay. You would get back, you know, a dollar 60. All right. Because that seven to eight is worth more. If they went favored by three and they won by four, yet it's a non-normal distribution in the sense that going to eight to nine doesn't have the same increase going to eight to nine where seven to eight will pay you a dollar 60. 
you know, eight to nine only pay you a dollar seventy two, you know, and nine to ten will then pay you another big leap up to um will then pay another big leap up to, you know, a dollar ninety seven, you know, then ten itself will pay you, you know, two oh seven and then from there you get your full money. So that, I mean, that, so, so football was unique in that regard. Basketball is much more linear than football in terms of the, the model behind that. But nonetheless, these are things I was working on in high school while, while I had pretty poor grades, um, was just how to be a better liquidity provider. And, and I just learned a ton of lessons, um, that ultimately there was this spirit that I ended up creating the netto number to provide better context on performance. The netto number is what I use today is, is, is the equivalent or tantamount or analogous the progressive point spread, which I used 25 years ago as a, as a bookie in high school. Right. Okay. So you might've lost me a little bit, but what do you mean by you were a liquidity provider as a bookie? Yeah. I mean like what bookies inherently do is that they don't pick the side necessarily that someone bets on just in in the way a market maker doesn't pick the side. Uh, someone comes and you have, I don't know how you, how familiar you might, you might be with American football, but the, the New England Patriots are a very popular team. The Dallas Cowboys are a very popular team. Okay. And so I don't tell people who they get to bet on in the same way that a market maker doesn't, a market maker, you go to a market maker and my job to make a market, make a market, uh, for an NYSE stock. Okay. Let's say Alcoa. All right. It's my job to keep an early market and provide liquidity for both buyers and sellers. Okay. So being a bookie has the same skill set. I'm there to provide liquidity for people who want to bet on that team or bet against the team. I'll make a market for them. If you want to bet on the Dallas Cowboys, you got to lay seven points minus a dollar, 10 to win a dollar. Okay. If you want to bet against the Dallas Cowboys, you also can get seven points. All right. For minus a dollar, 10 to win a dollar. So bookies are very much liquidity providers because they simply are facilitating order flow for people's desires based on what they expect to happen in the future. And so in high school, I was facilitating order flow based on people's, you know, prognostications around sporting events. And that's what, that's where I was drawing the analogy. Right. So this sounds quite advanced for a 16 year old to be doing. Where are we doing this? Just out of your bedroom at home or? Great question. So I, I grew up in the Bay Area, East Bay Area, San Francisco, a small city called Pinal, uh, Pinal, California. I'm, I'm a California native, uh, East Bay Area, right near Oakland, Berkeley, very close uh, on Interstate 80 for those who are familiar with, with some of the interstate geography in the U.S. And on Sunday nights, the Stardust line, the Stardust is a very famous casino back in the late 80s and, and, and 90s, and really in terms of big pioneer when it comes to a lot of the sports betting and odds making that went on for uh, sports investing. And so I got uh, this really powerful um, radio line that would come in that I'd pick up down in my bedroom and I would record all the, all the opening point spreads, okay? And then I would listen to this sports and all they would talk about every night was just sports betting. And so I would like listen to all these handicappers and do everything and go to school. I'd print out these parlay cards at my high school. Then I, then I got other sort of people to work with me from other high schools as well. And I built up a pretty sophisticated operation, understand that I was still not 18 years of age, which in the U.S. is when you can be tried as an adult for, for doing something against the law with a full understanding that, that being a bookie was, was against the law, or, or I should say facilitating order flow. Um, sports investing is not, was not legal in California at the time. It was only legal in Nevada. And even then you needed to have a license. And at 16, I, I assure you that I had no license to do what I was doing. But nonetheless, I didn't let that stop me from my entrepreneurial desires. And, you know, worked at primarily football, age 16, 17, even some of 15, my sophomore, junior, and senior year in high school. And then I turned 18 um, in December to, uh, December 1992. And, uh, and then left that and then, and then joined the Marine Corps, uh, eight months later, nine months later. 
Right, right. So tell us a little bit about your time as a Marine. How long did you serve for? What was that like, etc.? Yeah, I, I tell people this unequivocally that, that joining the Marine Corps at the age of 18 was the most profound decision in my life and it's had the most profound consequences in my life. The, uh, you know, I was a classic underachiever in high school, had a lot of self-esteem issues, um, really wondered if I'd even be able to get a job, wondered if I was even that intelligent, if I was that smart. So I had a lot of just, you know, issues that, that, that permeated throughout my academics and, and just a complete lack of discipline. And I was pretty soft as well, really, really soft and just needed to be, I just needed, I just needed to grow. And, and I'd always held it's incredibly high regard for the U.S. Marine Corps. I mean, regarded as maybe the most elite military organization in the world. Incredibly stern, incredibly, incredibly disciplined, physically fit, physically demanding, um, and just have that integrity and just have that sense of pride that I could be part of the best. And, and again, with my poor grades, this just seemed like a natural outlet, you know, um, or, or place to go because I wasn't going to college with the, with the grades that I had in high school. I mean, I failed multiple classes. Um, and really look at high school as more of a, as, as a business than I, than I did as like a place to, to learn a Pythagorean theorem, you know, from geometry. So listen, I joined, uh, and my first assignment was in Japan and I, I established a passion for the Japanese language. So in 1994, I went to Japan, spent two years there at Iwakuni. I worked in weather, weather forecasting, weather observation, briefing fighter pilots before they go out and run. So again, you know, you're talking about something chaotic in the weather, something that requires forecasting, prediction, the use of models. Um, this stuff just made a lot of sense to me. And, 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 but that was not my true passion when I was there. Like my real passion was really studying the Japanese language. I loved the Japanese language. And I would spend two to three hours a day in my Marine barracks studying Japanese, trying to go out in town, trying to meet people. You know, we didn't have, this is 1994. We didn't have like Google Translate on our, on our smartphones. So I just did the best that I could um, and just tried to speak to the Japanese nationals who were on base because you didn't have to learn a word of Japan because you're on a U.S. base and totally insulated from the outside. So that gave me a lot of confidence that I could learn a language like Japanese after being there for two years. I then went back to the, to the U.S. again, trained to work at the U.S. Embassy in Tokyo, came back, was assigned to the State Department, the U.S. State Department, the U.S. Foreign Service, lived in Tokyo, Japan for two more years, again, continued my Japanese study with a with a lot of the, tra the State Department translators that were there, um, trained under them till 1996, or sorry, till 1998, and then came back to the U.S. and, and it was during 1998 that I started trading again, had an E-Trade account, and uh, and and came back to the University of Washington, studied Chinese, and then became the business editor at the University of Washington newspaper. And this was kind of where everything kind of coalesced, and and I joined up with a trading firm then. Um, and, and broke down and really started helping them develop option strategies and derivative strategies as this stuff just all made a lot of sense to me. Cool, man. Well, let's break that down a little bit. First of all, how long did it take you to learn the Japanese language so that you could actually speak it fluently? Fluent's a very discriminating word. And anyone who studied Japanese that said non-native Japanese speaker would probably never use that word fluent. It's, 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 it's very complimentary and I, and I spoke it effortlessly and naturally, but it's a, it's, I never got to be fluent at it, um, but very effective, very natural. Um, but it took me studying every day close to nine months um, with multiple you know, failures along the way in terms of just like thinking that I had progressed and then I hadn't. And then by the end of two years, I was pretty good at it. But then I hit another level um, when I came back to the U.S. Embassy. So I, I say if someone lives there and you immerse yourself, you'll be functional in nine to 12 months. 
And then you'll be really developed after like two years, I think, is a good time frame. It's regarded by the State Department along with Chinese and Arabic. It's what they call a level four language. So they say it takes about 2,200 hours of classroom instruction to become you know, professionally competent in it, where something like Spanish or French may take 600 hours of classroom training. Just to give you a context of a level four language like Japanese versus a level one language like a Spanish or French. So during your time in the Marines, uh, you opened your first E-Trade account. Yeah. How did you go once you did that? Not very well. Um, this was the, during the Thai bot currency crisis. And it, this was this was when tech stocks were starting to rip. Um, and uh, I put like five or $6,000 and I lost it all or most of it. It was, you know, I'd... I was already saving money in mutual funds and, and, you know, pulled out of there and, and just made a lot of, you know, seemed to be buying at highs and selling at lows. And for as smart as I thought I was at the time, I, I had a horrific sense of timing in the markets and, and that, you know, didn't work out very well for sure. Okay. So how long did it take before that money was all gone? <sighs> uh, three or four months. Okay. <laughs> so not very long. Yeah. No, I mean, it was, it was, again, I'm working full time as, as a Marine. And so it's not like I'm like tick by tick and, and, and watching the charts. It's like, okay, this is up. And there was just, again, there was no process. It was like, oh, this looks good. I'll buy that, you know, and, and just a lot of impulsive trading. And, and it's ironically at the time, like, I think I was so bad at it that I thought to myself, if I could just do the opposite of what I've done, um, which, which is actually part of what I've actually developed since then in terms of my own study and why I journal so much today and spend so much time understanding my own self-awareness is because of what our emotions can tell us. So the, a lot of the, the things that I still implement today are from like early observations I've had, like, wow, there's gotta be a way to harness my, my horrific timing ability to, to, to make money, <laughs> which it was pretty bad. So, so yeah. That's funny. So what was particularly difficult for you at that time? You, you mentioned there uh, you were very impulsive. Uh, was there anything else which was quite challenging and which you can maybe pinpoint as to why you were losing money? No, impulsiveness and lack of process. You know, I mean, coming in and buying something, you know, because it's up or because it's down or because you think it's going to go down and, and just and just the the classic stuff, taking profits really quickly. I mean, frankly, throw a dart at a wall. You know what I mean? Like money management can still probably save you, okay? Even throwing darts at a wall and, and, and hitting something. If you're man managing money well and controlling size, you know, you, you could probably still do okay in the long run. I don't know. But if you are consistently taking short profits and letting losers run against you, and, oh, I really like this company and you hold on to it, all right? And this seems like a good company. Yeah, this can grow. But then when it's up a little bit or it's up 2 or 3% of the day, you book out of it. You know, but if it's down to you 5%, you're cool with it because you can hold it for the long term. No, I mean, I was, I was just classic, classic, any mistake that any of your listeners have made, I assure you, I have like just mastered it and I've like done it in a much more spectacular fashion in terms of the, the mistakes that I've made, I promise you. So how long did it take until you really began to get the swing of things and actually like see consistent results? Was this afterwards when you left the Marines and went working at a trading firm? I was doing a concurrent situation. I got in the Marine Corps in 02 and, and I was working with a, with a prop group and that's really kind of where I came into my own. Um, the first I'd say that it, it, it wasn't one thing, but there were some important things. One, um, Joe DiNapoli's book, Trading with the Napoli Levels, I bought in 2000. That was really important. I attended a couple of technical analysis, just, just courses from traders. Um, Rob Deal was one of them. This other guy was just like momentum trader. And so I started implementing candlesticks technical analysis, having a process. 
And while I don't necessarily use those exact methods today, um, the process of using Fibonacci levels, I, I very much use the Napoli stuff today. I think he's brilliant. Um, his book is brilliant. Uh, but um, so Denapoli's Fibonacci levels really gave me an incredible amount of confidence. Um, and that, and, and I'd say I, I flipped the switch in late 99, early 2000 and, uh, and definitely had some, some more bumps along the way, but that's where like, just, ah, I get it because discipline, once I understood a process, being disciplined, having been in the Marine Corps was not the issue. Managing risk was not the issue. Making a laydown on, on a losing trade was not the issue. Once I understood the process. Not a process in place and can develop that. And for that matter, I mean, it's 2017 and I'm still always looking to improve that process. So this is, you know, 17 years into it. And not every year since then has been a winning year. I've had a lot of winning years, but not everyone's been, been a winning year. And I've gone through some setbacks along the way. But, you know, overall, uh, I, uh, I like betting money on myself in these markets for sure. All right. Well, let's get into a little bit about your, your strategy. So first of all, what markets do you predominantly trade uh, these days? I'm, I'm a cross asset class trader, uh, focused primarily on 35 main futures markets. For example, today, everything I did was in the, not everything I did, but nearly, nearly everything I did was in the ag space, soybeans, corn, um, and wheat. I traded a lot of wheat, a lot of soybeans today, traded a lot of options around those positions as well. We had a very big ag report that had all sorts of nuances to it. Um, and, Today, that was where it was at. I also traded some copper this morning, some silver this morning, um, traded some treasuries this morning as well. So there was a lot going on. It was more about where the opportunity for price discovery was. Um, and that, that's kind of where I go. You know, I mean, I have an eight, you know, flat panel setup. Um, I have some pretty sophisticated software, both off the shelf and, and that I built proprietarily, which helps me make this happen. And I'm very, you know, concentrated on, you know, what market regime we're in. And so as a result of that, um, I'm, you know, very protean. That's the word, you know, I'm, I'm the protean trader. And, and the word protean means highly versatile, easily adaptable, um, able to take on many shapes and forms. And so for me, like, it's just about what time of the day the opportunities exist, what, what the underlying macro narrative is, what regime are we in, what markets are performing best, you know, based on my netto number, which is sort of referenced earlier. And, and then following those markets and putting on trades and, 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 you know, fortunately the performance has, has been there to, to substantiate the process. Sure. So if I was to ask you, like, how do you trade? How do you sum up your strategy? Just give us the quick sort of rundown and then we'll, we'll um, unpack it a little more. Yeah, my strategy is a compilation strategy. And, and in essence, what I do is, 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 is allocate to a number of robust strategies based on the current market regime and their probability of success. So what I do is lever and gear various strategies based on how I think they'll perform in any given market environment. So one day I may have 3x exposure on mean reversion strategies. The other day it may be more on relative value. The other day it may be more on premium selling. The other day it may be more on long gamma. The other day it may be more, you know, um, trend following. Other days momentum. Or even within certain asset classes themselves, I'll take that philosophy and apply that. Again, it's, it's all about understanding what the, what the, the narrative is and hence the name, the global macro edge. And so, you know, are, are central banks driving things right now? Are we near, you know, what, what fundamental overlay is happening right now? You know, um, like tomorrow, for example, and, and, you know, part of the trouble with this is we're on a podcast that, that you want to be a little bit evergreen, but, you know, try not follow my logic here. And, and it may help sort of open some, open some eyes to the process and not so much about this one single event, but tomorrow, you know, we've had a week where, where treasuries have sort of have rallied and, and undone some of this Trump trade. 
We have retail sales number coming out tomorrow. It's supposed to represent the, the flow of flows of December. We have China, um, export numbers as well. And these are things that, you know, could potentially move things in, in, especially right now, given the short position. So market position is a big deal for me. So on fixed income, if we get weaker data, I'm going to lever up my momentum strategies. Okay. If we get inline data, I'm going to lever up my mean reversion strategies because I don't think we're going to sell off in treasuries tomorrow. I don't think we're going to rally that hard either, given where we are technically. So guess what? I want more mean reversion strategies running to fixed income, given where gold is, or given where the, some of the ags are right now, both wheat and soybeans. I'm actually given that the numbers today are going to lever up more momentum strategies tomorrow and trend following strategies tomorrow and, 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 and no mean reversion strategy and, and lower the mean reversion strategies that go. So I developed multiple strategies and I'm constantly tweaking them of where they're at. Then I also run a lot of event stuff as well. So today, you know, there's those, those big agriculture numbers. I just know how to like read and interpret. I have a great network that I can ping off of and, and develop incredibly complex contingency scenarios or even not so complex contingency scenarios around these events, a Fed event, an ECB, a BOE, an ag number, a Trump press conference. But all of it requires a lot of preparation, a lot of work, a lot of diligence, a lot of study. And 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 you got to have a process to do that. Yeah, I was just about to say that because, I mean, it sounds like you've got eyes all over the place and you're monitoring a whole lot of things. How do you, how do you not miss anything? <laughs> I mean, you do. I mean, that's reality. Well, I mean, I've, I've done my best, like, like, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty, um, pretty well thought out, um, automation process, you know, a way to enhance. And there's three keys just to being a successful trader. Um, you know, operations, analytics, and execution. Okay. And, and a lot of people focus on the execution, but there's the analytics and operations that are there. And by analytics, I mean, you just asked about, well, how do you catch all this stuff? Well, I have process. I've hired programmers to build me spreadsheets that make sure I catch all this stuff. You know, if you're going to run, you know, if you're going to have 300 strategies that you're constantly monitoring or, or even more than that at times, you need to have a complete framework that allows you to catch all that. And if you use automation, you use technology, it's why I think there's more opportunities today available to a more diverse group of people. Because while there is a lot of information, those that can, you know, aggregate, organize and assimilate that information stand to benefit and the technology is there to do that. So for me, it's a technology issue and it's about committing time to the process of analytics and your operations. Like, you know, I spent a lot of time analyzing, you know, my statements, but I can't just look at raw broker statements. Most of them are pretty crappy. You have to have a system that can import them and give you that 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 framework and that skill set. So, to or that functionality, and that's, I mean, there you go. Do you have someone who works with you full time? I know you're an independent trader and you're trading your own money, but do you uh, hire anyone full time to help out with all of this stuff? Not full time. Everyone I do is on a contract basis. Um, my wife is amazing. She's incredibly organized. She, you know, has access and sees everything and, and works with me very closely. Um, you know, I, I, I hire programmers to do one-off projects for me. So I've hired quite a few programmers and, and just, you know, um, work that. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a little guarded about some of the stuff I do because, you know, this is my livelihood and I'm, well, I want to share with you guys today. I can't, some things I sort of have to protect, but I, I definitely hire, I outsource a lot of stuff. I'll, I'll just say that. So how do you go about hiring a programmer? Like where do you find a programmer to hire? Um, I'm a big word of mouth guy um, because I have a lot of people trying, you know, do that. But also I would say, you know, do your own due diligence, look on the internet. Um, a lot of software providers out there have APIs. And so you can ask your software provider, listen, who's been certified to, to program on this platform? You know, whatever your platform is, most of them have APIs. And so listen, I want to 
I want to hire a guy to, to program a blank strategy for me, you know, but even places like trade station, a lot of that stuff, I mean, you, you can do, you know, there. And I mean, if you, there's a lot of people that program in trade station, you can hire. Um, the question, you know, the question is what you want your programmer to see, um, how easily it is you can make the, the, the inputs and parameters tweakable, things like that. You know, these are best practices that, that, that I spent a lot of time in a kind of journal and documented, you know, yeah, that's a really good tip about asking uh, your software provider who's like sort of certified or they know of who who works with their software or their API. Uh, that's an awesome tip. Um, and just to your later point, how do you how do you address that concern about you know not wanting to show your programmer the secret sauce? You know, how do you safeguard some of the the important things yet still work with them uh, effectively? Change the parameters. It's as simple as that. I mean, that's a good start. You know, you can, you can sign, you know, work agreements and everything else, you know, status of work agreements. And there's, there's all these IP attorneys out there. I have, I have, I have a few of them. Um, and you know, uh, there has to be a trust factor. Spirit has to be good. And then the reality is that like, you're going to end up showing them stuff that they're, that's just going to be proprietary. And that's just kind of what it is. It's just kind of the cost of doing business. If you try and do everything yourself, Yes, you'll have the benefit of safeguarding it, but then the reality is you're not going to tap into their knowledge and experience, and you'll be missing out on other value add that they could possibly provide if you have the right program. I, I have some amazing programmers that work with me that have uh, that have some incredible skill sets that I could never even hope to replicate when it comes to their programming prowess. So I just tend to accept that it's just part of the deal, and ultimately my biggest edge is how I interpret the information, and use the tools that they're creating, not the tools itself. So so they can make me an automated strategy. Um, Great, make me three, five hundred of them, ten thousand of them. It doesn't matter because if they don't know how to lever them based on the market regime, which is what I spend an incredible amount of time developing qualitatively, not quantitatively. Which I think is what the big key is to my edge is. It's not that I can make a better moving average crossover system or a better RSI sell and buy system. I mean, come on, dude. Like we all can make those. You can buy them off the shelf, but it's I know or I've I've, I've demonstrated success in terms of when to, when to lever those up and lever those down, and that's the entire. I mean, that's the trick is when do you go to a meaner version strategy in this asset class or this product or this part of the yield curve? When do you go to a trend fall? When do you go to, you know, a breakout system? Like that's more important than, oh, let me optimize this so I can use this moving average instead of that moving average. I find that that's done very little. What's more important is what environment that, that, that they fix in. And that's in essence, you know, that's my edge. Well, this is something that I wanted to ask you about is market regime. So maybe speak to us a little bit about how you interpret market regimes and how you see them market regime sort of not sort of comes in the three different areas technical fundamental and sentiment um i measure things from a technical perspective measure things from a fundamental perspective and then measure things from a sentiment perspective and those those three right there are what ultimately shape my my opinion of, of what a market regime is and how those three things influence you know various asset classes you've seen the headlines bonds are making a comeback but if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. They started at the beginning, reimagining the bond screener with an intuitive design that helps you zero in on the exact kinds of bonds you're looking for. 
Then they made it easier to evaluate each investment opportunity with better data in the places you need it most. Finally, they made investing in bonds as straightforward as stocks or any other asset. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. So let's dig a little deeper into your research process because I know that's such a big part of what you do. So what data is most important to you and where do you spend most of your time doing research? I read, you know, uh, 10 to 15 different qualitative sources um, and then do a lot of bespoke proprietary um, research as well. Uh, I'm big into understanding, you know, hmm, how can I say this? I, uh, I'll just put this, I spend a lot of money on bespoke private research and, 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 and researching certain ideas, certain themes, how they've played out. Um, you know, Bloomberg is a big part of that. The Bloomberg terminal, which, you know, is, it's, you know, $26,000 a year for that, but it's an incredibly powerful tool to go back and, and analyze past narratives to, to aggregate data. There's a lot of, you know, some other people use MATLAB and get data for that. But for me, um, usually use, use Bloomberg, use CQG. Um, they both have back testing functionality on there, which lets you, you know, import items, particularly in Bloomberg in terms of economic data or, or, or custom-made indexes that represent certain trades. Um, I'm always, you know, I put together synthetic indexes that they represent what I think the macro theme is. It may be, you know, long AAA debt, long copper and long, you know, and long, uh, and long the S&P and long dividend paying stocks could be a synthetic index that I create. And I'm watching how that's performs and, and how that's doing on a P&L basis and what that mess, what that message is saying. So, I just am always tinkering, always playing around and understand that most of the best trades that have a really nice asymmetrical return to risk profile, meaning that like you risk one to make five potentially, often come with a great deal of discomfort and come with very little historical precedent and require you to understand kind of the uniqueness or novelty of the situation that you're in. And I read in your book that you estimate you spend around $80,000 per year on, on third-party research. Sure. Why do you spend so much on that? Like, do you get, is that such an added benefit that you couldn't come up with yourself, like, you know, based on your experience? So you read in my book that I made $80,000. Did you also read my p in my book? You spent $80,000 on research. Right, right. And so, so if you read that in my book, then did you read what I make per year trading in my book? Of course. 
Okay. So what, what did I make trading per year in my book? Well, I don't know off the top of my head. You can tell me. Okay. So let's just say $600,000 a year. Okay. So if I'm spending 80K, all right, and I'm, and I'm pulling down 600K, it's probably a good bet given the level of, of thought that I put into things that the research was, was paying good dividends. Seems fair. That's, that's not totally unfair, right? No, I'm just curious as to what if you didn't have that $80,000 of research, what would your P&L be for the year? You know what I mean? Like how much does that actually contribute to your returns? I think substantially. I mean, I'm, I'm, if I am not researching themes and topics and ideas and, and, and finding edges, you know, that takes away a lot of the P&L and that has a compounding effect. Okay. So if I, you know, I mean, I, the research is important in my process. I would say the thing that I need to improve on, I guess, we all need to improve is, is just the scale. You know, a lot of people who make five or 10 million a year may only spend 80 to 100,000 a year on research. I spend that making five or $600,000 a year. So for me, it's, it's, it's about, okay, I spent that. It's a ton of, it, it, there's value on both an absolute basis in terms of what I get, because that research also contributes to my processes that I'm developing for the next 10, 15, 20 years. So, so that question is sort of like multi-pronged. It's, did you get the benefit of it immediately? And then what, you know, what systems were you able to create for the long term that, that, that could be beneficial? And so for me, the annual money I spent on research and infrastructure, um, that, you know, that, that has profound impact, not just this year, but in terms of the content I was able to produce for my, for my book. All right. Like a lot of the book, you know, came from, is obviously a, a byproduct of my experience. But that, you know, some of the research made its way into the content of the book. So it, it's not just about immediate P&L. It's that research as to the process creates further trading ideas, creates a deeper understanding, a more profound impact, uh, helps you make better decisions. And, and that's, you know, and I think that my, my performance in P&L, my account, you know, substantiate that. Sure. No, that's a fair point. I mean, I was just asking because I think you know, for most people who are listening to this podcast, of course, spend nowhere near that much. So I just sort of trying to understand why you do this. You know what I mean? Sure. And I, I'm going to answer short term and long term, like short term, because I see the immediate benefit in long term, because I see a chance to build even more robust set of strategies and even more robust process. And that just takes money and it takes time and it takes resources. And I, I just wouldn't be as developed and, and, and have the knowledge base that I do if I didn't make that kind of investment. Now, I probably should have asked you this question a little bit earlier, but you know, you kind of, I guess, loosely categorize yourself as a macro, global macro trader. When I typically hear the words global macro trader, I think of someone who's taking really long-term positions, but I kind of get the sense that that's not so much the case for you. What's maybe your average sort of hold time? That's not global macro anymore, though. Like, I mean, I, you're not correct in your, in your interpretation of that. But the reality is that that was the global macro of 10 or 15 years ago. Okay. That was a global macro of the Paul Tudor Jones and Lewis Bacon's and et cetera. They would take these like bets against or George Soros would take these bets against these governments and, and take on this incredible risk profile. And, and, and ultimately the, the, their macro bet would come through. But that was a much different market, a much different, you know, information was delivered and disseminated in much different ways. Now global macro, because of social media, because of, you know, you're doing a podcast with me in Australia and I'm here in, you know, in, in Las Vegas, Nevada. And we're connected by, you know, technology that makes it simple. The way information is disseminated, global macro is now, is now big trade ideas that permeate to the market and, and, and are processed in a 72 to 96 hour time frame. And so I'm a high velocity, you know, I, I call myself a high velocity cross asset class trader that incorporates the macro narrative. Because if I understand how a billion dollar manager thinks, which I do, 
and the network, the people, the network, the people in my network do as well. And some of them are billion dollar managers. All right. Then my ability to, to go after, you know, a market like that, like let's just face it, across, asset classes across the board for the last three years have seen you know, some of the lowest realized volatility levels in decades. And so if you're going to play those low realized volatility levels, those are not, that's not conducive for a pure, you know, traditional global macro manager from 20 years ago. That is, however, conducive for someone that is adaptable like myself, um, who, who can follow a market, who can play a market and understand what the macro narratives are and what, what headlines or what themes would come out to possibly change that perception and cause an alt, um, a repositioning that would go on and benefit from that repositioning. So with that being said, are you still taking any longer term bets? I don't have to. So no, I mean, I, there's no reason to when I can maneuver like I do and generate the returns that I do without taking on what I define lower sharp ratio components. I and mean, we all have to trade our balance sheet. And I'm not running a billion dollar fund. So I don't need to take on trades that face the same liquidity constraints. Now people out there, and again, you have to find your own style, but if you have a very small amount of capital, you know, people talk about, I don't have enough capital. Well, the people who have a lot of capital bitch and complain that they, you know, face liquidity constraints and can't get out of their positions, have to hold them for a long period of time. If you have a small amount of capital, make your lack of capital your biggest strength. Okay. And the fact that you can maneuver, you can trade very small size, you can catch edges that bigger funds just simply can't go after because it's not cost effective for them. Do you feel as though you do anything significantly different from many other modern macro traders? I do a lot of things different. I'm going to take a lot of, I mean, in terms of, in terms of how I structure them, I mean, I, I trade on my apartment. I trade my own capital. Okay. Like, like structurally that, that, those are two things right there that, you know, I should say my house, I don't have a New York city apartment anymore, but I trade on my home here in Las Vegas. Okay. I invest, you know, a disproportionate amount relative to what they do into building my own proprietary systems, my own, you know, um, software. I mean, I have a couple patents that, you know, that, that most macro managers don't, you know, don't file for patents based on, on, on their process. Okay. So, so I've done that. Most macro managers don't go out and write a 580 page book. All right. And, and <laughs> most macro managers don't, you know, have a netto number they call for themselves that redefines investment performance and, and, and redefines what alpha is and exactly what to pay for it. So there's a lot of unconventional things I do that are very different from fellow managers. Doesn't make me better or worse, but I would say that I'm, I take a lot of non-conventional approaches and I'm open to doing a lot of things differently. And I think my PL, you know, substantiates that. So when you say you have patents on your process, I think it was on your process. What are you actually referring to there? Can you expand a little bit more? I can't actually. I, I prefer not to. No trouble. So what do you think are some of the common misconceptions that less experienced traders have um, about global macro? The risk management side, you know, a lot of global macro guys are really, frankly, some of the sharpest, most brilliant people you'll ever meet. Um, where I think a lot of them have struggled, where there's been a lot of struggle is on the risk management side. And, you know, you have these great themes, you have these great ideas, but you throw in a dysfunctional central bank system, not just with the US, but with the ECB, with the BOJ. And, and risk management probably becomes the single biggest challenge to effectively executing that, you know, that a, a, a strong global macro strategy because you're dealing with like, in essence, an environment that, that, that's almost impossible to model in terms of from a longer term perspective and, and, and dealing with, 
you know, 2015 was a classic example of the, the year of misinterpretation. So if you're a macro manager, again, a long-term macro manager, and you're, you know, you look, you look at how 2015 went in January, surprise from the Swiss National Bank in terms of removing their floor against the euro. Okay. Welcome to January. In March, the Fed comes out with one of the most dovish statements in a long time when they dropped their set forecast by a ton. Um, fast forward to September, the Fed of you know, September 15, the Fed throws in that, you know, China now is a risk in terms of, you know, effect, effectively executing their dual mandate of, uh, of price stability and unemployment. Okay. And then throw in December when the ECB, you know, when, when Draghi, you know, basically tells everyone that they're going to be able to lower the deposit rate to minus 40 basis points and then comes out and says 30 and says we're basically done. And the rest of the ECB members weren't going, weren't going along with it. So you have this, this incredible environment of, of total misinterpretation. Um, an incredible, an environment where Fed communications and, and Central Bay communications are incredibly vexing in what they do. And then you throw on top of that, that managers that are trying to place long-term bets, um, are having to become more tactical and it's just not a very good environment. So there's a lot of things that, you know, people can misinterpret. And, and as a result of that, you've seen four years of macro returns are just incredibly uninspiring. Let's change gears here, John. Um, we were talking a little bit, uh, the other day prior to doing the interview, one of the things you said to me was that you've got to be, you've got to step outside of your comfort zone. You've got to be uncomfortable. I'm really keen to hear your thoughts about why you think this is important to do. Yeah, I, I like I like being in trades where I have a little bit of fear, a little bit of an edge, where I, where, where in the back of my mind that like disaster can happen somehow, um, or that something really bad can go wrong. Not that like you constantly need to be looking for the Grim Reaper out there, but you know. When I get too comfortable in a trade, it makes me nervous. That's kind of my saying, you know, that I have on a little sheet in my uh, on my monitor. <laughs> kind of reminds me, like, you know, listen, just be aware of your emotions, be aware of your feelings, be aware of your instincts, um, and that and that often the greatest trades, like if if you journal this stuff, and I journal extensively, okay, and I keep this, I have what's called a qualitative self assessment that you know I, I put up all my you know um, a, a score for the trading day. And I'll talk and, and, and I'll grade myself and say, listen, okay, what's my preparation like? You know, what's my, you know, how's my routine? Okay. How is my focus? All right. Then I do a post, um, self qualitative self evaluation myself, you know, in terms of the execution, did I execute the plan Did I execute any contingencies? You know, how did I roll? How did I adapt with the market? You know, things like that. So I'm always grading myself. And if you, if you compile these qualitative notes, not just necessarily quantitative ones, you begin to get a sense of like, okay, I'm not comfortable with this position. But man, I think this lack of comfort is what's going to create this outsized return. And for me, I try and like just be in tune, be in touch with that. And, and that's sort of, you know, I, th I think most people, they wait till they're comfortable to, before they get in or they wait till they're comfortable until they do something. That's, that, I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying it's probably not going to give the same sort of lucrative returns that you want. And to get the lucrative, return, the lucrative returns that you want, you need to kind of be, on edge. Like it needs to be uncomfortable to hold on to that winning position. It needs to be, you know, uncomfortable to like, I don't know, cost average into a position that you should cost average into to follow your plan. It should be uncomfortable to follow your plan. Okay. A little bit, a little bit of, eh, you know, when I get that, eh, and it doesn't stop even my success, whoever, I mean, the, uh, needs to kind of always be there. Like, mm, yeah, go for it. Boom. Let's do this. Come on, power through that. Can you share an example maybe of a recent time when you felt uncomfortable in a trade? Maybe it was as early as today. Yeah, it was early as today. And um, 
and actually, um, the soybean trade that I was in earlier today was, uh, was uncomfortable. And, uh, and I got out, I mean, I had a good, good move on to the number. The number came out, it was after the number. Um, and just, it was, it just blistered everyone. It caught them by surprise. I was more focused on wheat actually. Um, and, uh, you know, even this morning, like I was a little, like, you know, I was kind of like hemming and hawing a little bit, like, you know, this is, there's a lot of people focused on a lot of stuff. I think there's gonna be a lot of opportunity. I think in the, in the, in the minutes and even hour that follow, there's going to be something going on here. And, uh, and, and frankly, you know, I caught, I got long wheat after the number came out. I got long soybeans after the number came out. Um, and was un, was a little bit uncomfortable in it and it felt good to get out and I made a really nice profit. But soybeans, if you see chart right now, they are freaking screaming. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and I sort of, you know, that's kind of where I thought like, wow. And, and, and people kind of thought $10 beans was sort of the, the area, but now we're like, we're at $10 and 40 cents and kind of think we're going to 10 50. And, and so I need to now execute systems that are trend following on soybeans. And so this morning was an example where I had a little bit of a, where I, where I had this confidence about how trading was going to go today, but like still had some uncertainty instead of some easiness. And, and I used that when I was in the position to ride it while I didn't ride it long enough. I still got a very good move out of soybeans. Um, and I did blow out, but I was in that. I felt a little bit uncomfortable and like, it was just like, okay, catch yourself, find your breath, find your breath. You're good here. This matches your criteria. You're good. You're good. So I, even I'm talking to myself at this stage and this success of the game and, uh, and, and, and there you go. I mean, that's probably not as, as coherent as you would like to hear, but that's just coming from the heart. Could this feeling of being uncomfortable be any way interpreted as being a lack of confidence in your approach? No, no, I'm pretty confident in my approach. Uh, that's, it's more about just understanding risk and understanding, um, understand that situations that aren't always clear, um, and, and more qualitative need to be, need to be appreciated and need to be respected. And, and it's that just this sense of, of you have an edge on something, you have a perspective on something that others don't have inherently being against the crowd or, or, or being early to something is not going to be comfortable because there isn't, there, there aren't as many corroborating factors out there. And I would say it's more of the lack of corroboration to, to show that you're correct that we still invariably go through because the markets can, can be noisy, you know, that they, they can be very noisy and you want to respect that noise um, as well, you know, as well as executing a process. And so I, I try and like not get overconfident and not because to me, like overconfidence creates complacency, complacency creates mistakes, mistakes create losses. And so it, it's, it's about trying to maintain that respect for the market, trying to maintain that even if you have an edge, you can do everything right. The process, but it still doesn't work. I, I, lose, I lose money all the time. Not all the time. I mean, net, net, I make money, but I lose money all the time. Yeah. And that's something you said to me also when we were speaking the other day, you said you've really got to embrace your losses and also growing pains. So why do we need to embrace losses? Because if you're not losing money, you're not taking the kind of risk you need to be successful. Period. Paragraph over. You know, how are you? I mean, it's, it's really simple. You want to find systems that compound upon themselves. All right. I mean, you want to create a, a smooth equity curve, not a lumpy one because lumpy, lumpy equity curves. What I mean by that is if you gave me the choice to make 1% a day, all right, or make one day of make only 5% and nothing else, I'll take the 1% a day because I can compound that. Okay. If you give me the one 5% upshot and, and zero the rest of the days, um, 
that's a tougher bet. Okay. That's a tougher, that's a tougher prospect. And I can't leverage that as much because the, 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 the downside lumps can, can wipe you out. But if I make one, make one, make one, make one percent, then lose one, lose one, then make one, make one, make one. That's a very manageable equity curve. And that's far more leverageable than make five, make five, lose five, lose five, you know? You may have already touched on this a little bit, actually, but for many traders, you know, the psychological aspect is a really big challenge. How do you deal with this aspect? Is emotion an ally or an enemy to you? Emotion is a huge ally. Um, you know, it, it's been an enemy in the past, but, you know, I've talked about this in terms of understanding the, the uncomfort, the, the, the discomfort that, that I have sometimes in holding to a position and, 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 um, categorizing those emotions from being discomfort or being outright fear, being outright, you know, difference between being anxious and panicking. Okay. Difference between, you know, being, being confident and being complacent. And so I'm, I'm, I try and spend as much time as I can, reasonable, reasonably time that I can just being aware of those, being aware of that skill set. And if I, and, and if I do find myself getting too, too complacent, because I do at times feel that I, I can feel my emotional pendulum sort of tilting towards overconfidence and just having that self-awareness can be incredibly beneficial because we all go through times where we, you know, question whether we're going to make money again, even in the last, you know, seven or eight years, I've had times where you go through a month or two and like it doubt creeps into your mind. It happens with all of us. I mean, in other times we're like, we're like, not that it's rational, but emotions aren't necessarily rational where you think like, I'm, I'm am I ever going to lose again? Like this is so natural and obvious and expected. Winning is so expected. You know, so it's about being aware of those things and being aware of what they may represent to your personal equity curve and being aware, being aware of what they may represent in terms of my ability to discretionarily execute and assess what regime that we're in and ultimately how to allocate the strategies around that. Um, John, you recently released a book titled The Global Macro Edge. What's the elevator pitch, man? What can listeners expect from reading it? Yeah, the you know conventional investing asks, what was my return? The global macro edge asks, what was my return per unit of risk? And it's that process of identifying a market, a strategy, a manager, you know, your own performance on a return per unit of risk basis that, that is a game changer and, and not only assesses, you know, what you, how you look at markets, but how you assess where opportunity is and ultimately how to go, how to go about taking on that opportunity. And it's a huge book too. It's what, 580 pages? 580 pages, eight and a half by 11. Um, it's all over Instagram. You can get a context from my website as well. Excellent. And if listeners want to follow you on Twitter, what's your Twitter handle? At John Netto. Okay. Very good, man. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast, John. Let's talk soon. Thanks a lot. Great being here. Enjoyed the interview. It was awesome. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders. But rest assured, there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes, and we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders.